This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This week with George Stephanopoulos starts right now. Super Tuesday Showdown. We've been uh, launching like a rocket to the Republican nomination. Donald Trump looks to lock it up early as the border battle takes center stage. This is a Joe Biden invasion. Instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me. And the former president awaits multiple rulings that could delay his trials beyond Election Day. This morning, our exclusive with Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, plus legal analysis from Sarah Isger and Preet Bharara. Stepping aside. It's time for the next generation of leadership. Mitch McConnell plans to step down as Senate Republican leader after nearly two decades. The Senate is broken and not doing its job. It's been a long time since we've had a leadership race like this. We'll talk about what's next for Republicans with Senator Mike Rounds and the Powerhouse Roundtable. Desperate measures. Aid flowing to Gaza is nowhere nearly enough. The U.S. airdrops food aid into Gaza amid growing concerns of famine. We're live in the region, and we'll speak with World Central Kitchen founder, Jose Andres. From ABC News, it's This Week. Here now, Jonathan Carl. Good morning. Welcome to This Week. As we come on the air this morning, the U.S. military is airdropping desperately needed food to the people of Gaza. Later in this program, we'll be joined here in the studio by Chef Jose Andres, who has just returned from the region and is doing everything in his power to get food to people who are now facing the very real threat of starvation. But we begin on the home front. Super Tuesday just two days away, 15 states and one U.S. territory set to vote. In a normal presidential campaign, this would be peak primary season, heavy competition and upsets in the making. Instead, it seems as if the battle is already over with Biden and Trump racing to lock things up and setting up the rematch the overwhelming majority of Americans say they just don't want. But then again, the overwhelming majority of Americans have also consistently said they don't like partisan gridlock. They want the parties to work together to tackle America's problems. And yet our politics remain hopelessly divided. Consider the Senate. Only five states, that's five out of 50, now have a split delegation with a senator on each side of the aisle, the lowest number since senators first started being elected by popular vote more than a century ago. And after the November election, it's possible that every single state in the entire country, except one, will be represented by two senators from the same party. As for Biden and Trump, despite the steady march to the primaries, there are general election warning signs for each candidate. For Trump, it comes from the 40% or so of Republican primary voters in the early states who backed another candidate. Although truth be told, there's no real evidence in the polls to back up Nikki Haley's claim that Trump can't win in November. For Biden, the warning shot came this week in Michigan, 
where more than 100,000 Democrats voted uncommitted, a protest vote fueled by their anger over the president's handling of the war in Gaza, which has now taken more than 30,000 Palestinian lives in the nearly 150 days since the conflict began, according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. Despite those warning signs, Biden and Trump have already turned to the general election, nowhere more clearly than on Thursday, when they both visited Texas at the same time, each blaming the other for not dealing with the influx of migrants at the southern border. And that's where we begin this morning with Senator Chris Murphy, one of the group of bipartisan senators who negotiated a border security deal that failed to get enough Republican support to move forward. Senator Murphy, thank you for being here. I want to start with the, with the trip to the border by, by Trump yep. and, and Biden. With uh, Congress deadlocked on the issue that you worked so hard on, uh, we, we've heard that the president's considering executive action uh, of some kind. Can you give us a sense of what is under consideration, what he'll may, he may do? Well, first, I, I was very glad to see the president go to the border. I think Democrats need to go on the offense on this question of controlling the border. The fact of the matter is we did achieve a bipartisan compromise that would give the president new powers to get the border under control, and Donald Trump killed it. Donald Trump and Republicans decided that they want the border to be chaotic because it helps them politically. And polls show that if Democrats just tell that story, if the president tells that story, Republicans' political advantage on the border is erased. Now, the reality is President Biden needs that legislation because it is just not true that he has the existing authority to issue executive actions that can get the border under control. So we're not going to see it. I mean, because he, he did, as we understand it, when the, when the National Governors Association uh, was in town, he told the governors he was uh, considering executive action. So that you, there, there's nothing he's going to do except talk about the bill. Uh, the, the Republicans blocked? I, I, listen, I, I can't tell you whether President Biden is going to move forward on executive action. What I can tell you is that the bipartisan bill had $20 billion of new resources. He can't conjure $20 billion with an executive order. The, that bill gave him the power to shut down the border in between the ports of entry. I don't think he can do that by executive action. So Republicans- about tightening the asylum laws, making it tougher to- can't, he, he, Those are statutes, right? right? The president can't modify those statutes with executive order. And Republicans know this. So Republicans blocked the bill because they knew only the legislation would be effective in controlling the border. Mm -hmm. They want the border to be out of control because it helps him politically. And they know the president has limits to what he can do through executive order. But, but let me ask you, this is obviously three years in. I know you spent several months negotiating this. But why did it take so long uh, for the president to address uh, this, this crisis at the border in terms of the flow of migrants. Well, I don't know that that's fair. Um, in the first week that the president was in office, he sent to Congress a comprehensive immigration and border reform but, bill. But, but wait a minute, that, that bill was to provide a path to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented citizens, uh, uh, re residents here in the country. It, it was not a border security bill. It was a. It, it was, was also, an immigration it was also, bill. No, it was also an asylum reform bill, right? And reforming the asylum system. It didn't. It didn't tighten great, the asylum rules greatly, the way yours did. It did changes the calculus for people coming into the country. And the president instituted a very tough new regulation that does stop people at the border, does change the asylum calculation. It, as expected, was blocked by the courts because he needs he needs legislative action and. 
Republicans have made it very clear that they have no interest in coming to the table on immigration and border reform. And frankly, had we had this conversation a year ago, the calculation would have been no different. Republicans have made it absolutely crystal clear they want the border to be a mess. Donald Trump has, has told them so. But, but you, you know that uh, you've seen poll after poll after poll. I could cite the latest Quinnipiac poll. There's been poll after poll after poll showing an overwhelming majority of Americans disapprove of how President Biden has handled the border. And we've also seen the flow over the border dramatically increase under this president. What we also know is that under Donald Trump's presidency, crossings at the border were at a 10-year high. And this is exactly why I think the president and Democrats should go on the offense, because the vast majority of the country believes that we should have robust legal immigration, but they want tighter control of the border. And right now, there's only one party that can deliver that. Only the Democrats support pathways to citizenship, support expanding legal pathways into the country, and a tough border law. Republicans um, use the issue of immigration to try to divide us from each other, and now are on the record opposing the toughest border reform bill, the toughest border security bill in decades. Uh, we saw New York Mayor Adams uh, call for drastic changes to New York City's sanctuary policies. As, as the whole sanctuary city movement, did it, did it go too far? Are we seeing a rollback of that? Should there be a rollback of that? Well, you know, we treat immigrants compassionately in Connecticut as well. Um, and listen, I think that speaks to the best of this country. Ultimately, this solution has to be on the border and in the countries that people are fleeing. Um, I don't think it's in the best interest of this country to push immigrants into the shadows once they are here. So to me, the focus has to be on the border. Okay, I, I wanna turn to what we saw in Michigan where over 100,000 Democrats went to the polls and voted non-committed. Uh, obviously a, a protest vote to the president's handling of the situation in Gaza. How, how concerned as a political matter uh, should, should Democrats be? I don't think we should be concerned about this as a political matter, because this is such a critical issue relative to America's national security and the security of the Middle East. I would hope that the president doesn't make decisions about what to do in Gaza or the Middle East based upon how the votes line up. Listen, I think it is time for the president to use all the leverage that he has um, to get a long-term ceasefire. I think if that ceasefire doesn't come, it's in Israel's interest for them to pause military activity to solve the humanitarian crisis. But to the extent the president is using additional leverage on Israel, he should do that for national security reasons, not for political reasons. These issues are too important to be dictated by the polls. Is he not doing enough to pressure Israel on this? No, I, th I think you see him stepping up and using more and more pressure. But I think this is a critical moment where social order is unraveling inside Gaza. Uh, and I have both publicly and privately counseled the president to use whatever leverage he has to try to get this, this long-term ceasefire, that it has to happen tomorrow. And, and I want to ask you about uh, a trip that Vice President Harris made to, to Michigan on the issue of reproductive rights. But she went, it was a closed event, closed press event. There were only nine people she was addressing. The New York Times described this as a political bubble wrap that, that the vice president and the president are in trying to avoid, I guess, protesters on the Gaza issue. But don't they need to be out there more? 
Oh, I think you will see the president out there and you will see the vice president out there talking about choice, talking about border security, talking uh, about a foreign policy, frankly, that has renewed uh, the world's respect for the United States. Listen, I think the president is an incredibly compelling figure, um, and I would hope that the White House will um, send him out all over the country to just be who he is, right? He comes across as Scranton Joe Biden when he is, um, when he is engaging with voters, and I hope he does more of that. I think he will. All right, Senator Chris Murphy, thank you for joining us. Thanks. It's primary season, but in yet another sign of how strange this presidential race is, there was more action on the legal front this week than on the campaign trail. The Supreme Court taking the issue of presidential immunity, drama in Georgia surrounding the Fulton County DA, Hunter Biden testifying on Capitol Hill, and on Friday, Donald Trump spent his day at a Florida courthouse as lawyers argued over the next steps in the classified documents case. To help us make sense of it all, we brought in uh, some of our great legal minds, Preet Bharara, former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Sarah Isger, the former Justice Department spokesperson under the Trump administration. So, Preet, let me start with you. I want to ask you about something that came up while the president was watching, the former president was watching in Port, Fort Pierce, the, uh, the Justice Department's policy uh, of uh, not taking any major actions, no indictments or new investigations within a 60-day window before a, pres before a campaign. Um, so how does that square with the idea that we may actually be seeing full-blown trials of a presidential candidate right in the middle of the fall campaign? Yeah, so th there is a general policy, a norm, if you will, that the department, with respect to investigative uh, moves, um, things having to do with, with their, <clears throat> that are under their control, they don't take those steps near an election, within 60 days of an election. It's kind of ironic that the Trump team is arguing in favor of norms, <laughs> given all the norm breaking that's gone on on their side for a number of years now. But you know, as, as Jack Smith's team argued in court on Friday, that norm extends to things that are within, <clears throat> that are within the control of the Justice Department. Um, they don't apply in their mind, and I think this is correct, to uh, a trial happening after the indictment has already taken place, right? So a judge can decide in his or her discretion to proceed with a trial, um, notwithstanding that policy. Now, I will say, separate and apart from the policy, you know, it, it'll, it'll be an interesting thing, and uh, I think a judge will not lightly go to trial um, in October of an election year. I mean, Sarah, it really raises just mind-blowing possibilities that a jury could be going in to deliberate just as voters are going out to vote. I mean, this is, it's where we are, but it's an odd set of circumstances, to say the least. And it's not unprecedented. Remember when Senator Stevens was indicted by the Department of Justice, he actually demanded his speedy trial rights and the jury came back to convict him uh, just a week before Election Day in that year. You know, you talk to various people, senior former administration officials in the Justice Department, and they'll give you different reasons for this policy. One of the reasons, for instance, mentioned in Loretta Lynch's memo about this back during the Obama administration, says that it's about uh, some of the appearance for the Department of Justice to look 
impartial heading into an election. But, you know, other department officials will tell you, actually, it's about giving the defendant and the candidate in this case an opportunity to respond that if you suddenly take a public investigatory step too close to the election, you're not really giving them an opportunity to defend themselves, which would mean a trial's just fine because that, by definition, is the opportunity to defend themselves. So, Preet, the, the Trump campaign, not surprisingly, is pushing in, in, in Florida, as they are in the, the other cases, saying that these, these trials should happen after the election. But they did put forth a possible date for doing it before the election, August 12th. It seems, reading yeah. the tea leaves here, that they clearly, there are two federal cases. There's the January 6th case, and there's this documents case. It seems like they clearly, if one of them is going to happen before the election, they want it to be the documents case. Yeah, you know, the, the, the government has suggested that those dates are being put out in bad faith. I mean, there's a game of, I don't know what game you want to analogize the two, checkers, chess, backgammon, some, something else. But they, they want to clog up the docket. They want to clog up the, the, the schedule. So even while some of these other cases are winding their way through the Supreme Court, like the January 6th case, because we're waiting to hear what the Supreme Court will say about the claim of absolute immunity, if you have another case scheduled, that doesn't allow one of the other four cases to go forward, one of the other three cases to go forward, um, and they will come up with some excuse, presumably, as you get closer to the August date, as to why it can't go forward on that date. So I think there's a lot of gamesmanship going on here. And by the way, just further to what Sarah said earlier in your earlier question, um, you know, the reason you don't take an, investiga an investigatory step or some other action close to an election is, is you don't want it to impact uh, unduly against the person you've taken the action. And there's a lot of argument to suggest um, that being on trial and having these cases pending against him actually aids Donald Trump politically. We've seen that um, time and time again with the polls, and it's possible um, that the argument is actually the inverse of what Donald Trump's folks are advocating. I mean, he, he was there for six hours in Fort Pierce on Friday. Hey, very quickly uh, to both of you, uh, Hunter Biden was on, on Capitol Hill testifying behind closed doors didn't take the Fifth Amendment, even though he's facing multiple indictments. Uh, what's the bottom line on, on that case? Seems like Republicans are not getting anywhere, to say the least, in their, in their impeachment efforts. Sarah? They have not found what they need here. Uh, you know, it's sort of like with the Stormy Daniels hush money payment. Partisans on each side want everything that they don't like to be illegal. Here, we do have evidence of influence peddling, but that's not a crime if Joe Biden wasn't president, wasn't vice president, when it happened. And here you have Hunter Biden looking very confident that what he did might have been slimy, but it wasn't illegal and it doesn't implicate his father. Republicans have yet to really find what they need to move forward. Preet, quickly, your take? Yeah, it's a sideshow. It doesn't matter. Um, it's a spectacle, and I think we should move on. All right. On that note, thank you both for joining us. Coming up, Mitch McConnell plans to step down as the Republican Senate leader. What next for his party as Trump marches to the nomination? We'll ask one of the few remaining Republican senators who has not yet endorsed Donald Trump. We're back in two minutes. <clears throat> This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level 
today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. Senator Mitch McConnell announcing this week he'll step down in November as the leader of the Senate GOP after 17 years as leader. I'm joined now by Republican Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota. Senator, thank you for joining us. I want to start there with uh, Senator McConnell. Uh, you know, the, the, the McConnell-led uh, Senate was one of the last kind of bastions in the Republican Party of, of uh, Trump skeptical, uh, uh, you know, GOP. What, what's your sense? What happens after he leaves? Well, I think we'll have continued good leadership. Um, John Thune, I think, is kind of leading the race right now. He's my stable mate out here, also from South Dakota. Solid. And uh, he understands politics as well. We also know that we need leadership changes in the White House. We're prepared for that. Uh, whoever the Republican nominee is, we're going to get behind them, and we're going to make sure that this thing happens where we get back to actually building this economy again and getting some of the folks in this part of the world that are just angry as all get out right now because of the cost of living and so forth back, uh, back feeling like we're trying to fix things. So Senator Thune, uh, you know, expected to be uh, maybe even the leading candidate. But as you know, he's clashed mightily with Donald Trump. Trump tried to recruit somebody to run against him, failed in that effort, but tried to recruit somebody to run against him uh, in the Republican primary out there. He's called uh, Thune a rhino, Mitch's boy, a few other things that I don't want to get into. Um, what, what, how much of a role do you think Trump is going to have in, in the selection of, of the Republican leader? Look, look, look he, he's the Republican frontrunner. He's going to have, uh, you know, a voice in it. We recognize that. And I think as Mitch says, you know, we understand politics and that's a part of the political scene. But we also know that in the Senate, we've got a lot of independent thinkers as well. Uh, the former president will have, uh, you know, the opportunity to influence a number of my my colleagues, uh, but we also want to be able to have a good working relationship with him if he becomes the next president of the United States. We've got things we've got to get done. You know, you've already talked a little bit today about the border. It has to be fixed. We also know that like right here in South Dakota and, you know, South Dakota is right here in the middle of the entire country. Most folks will tell you right now that, you know, the cost of living has gone up about $10,000 a year since Joe Biden took office. They're feeling that they want change. When you talk about energy and what Joe Biden did on the very first day where he shut down a pipeline that was a $2 billion project, they're still remembering that. And when you think about Afghanistan and the fact that he pulled out on a date certain, which was a terrible message to all of our allies, a lot of people here in the United States are saying that was wrong as well. So for us in the Senate, uh, we're looking forward to a change in leadership. We're prepared to work with whoever the next president is. But um, I think you're going to find that a lot of folks in the Senate will take their own time in terms of how they work through and, 
you know, the vote on a vote by vote basis when they're going to support the president and when they're not. By the way, I should point out that the former president's had some choice words for you, as, as you no doubt uh, know. <laughs> I, I think he called you uh, or questioned whether or not you were crazy or just stupid, a jerk, a rhino, a weak. Anyway, I, we could go on. But, but how, how important is it for whoever the Senate leader is uh, to have some degree of independence uh, from, from Donald Trump? I mean, I understand you say everybody needs to be on board in the general election, but how, how important is it to do what McConnell did, which is be willing to stand up to Trump? Well, that's what I'm looking for in a leader. I want someone who will work with a president, but who also will stand his own ground. Um, that's one of the reasons why I very publicly and openly supported John Thune, and uh, I supported Mitch McConnell. Uh, I think John Thune will bring some, you know, a, a fresh breath. That always happens when you have a change in leadership. And, and once again, you know, we've got some other folks who are going to take a look at it. They are good people. It's not a matter of having a bad choice out there uh, for those of us in the Senate, but we've got some really good choices. I just happen to think John Thune is the right guy at the right time. Um, great moral character. He's the right kind of a guy, and uh, I think he will be independent enough to where he will look out also, just like Mitch did, for the institution of the Senate itself. So I'm optimistic. It's the reason why I'm supporting him. But as a Senate, our obligation is to look long term. We're elected from every single state and we want to take care of our individual states, but we've also got the bigger picture of constitutionally what is right. And also in terms of national defense, we've always got to be looking at national defense as our primary responsibility. So yeah, we've got some, some other alternatives, but it's very similar to what a president should have. So uh, I want to ask you about something that Donald Trump has been claiming in court. The Supreme Court is going to take up this issue. But do you, do you agree with this notion that a president has absolute immunity for actions taken while he or she is president, uh, effectively above the law? I, I do not. And in fact, um, I was of the same opinion that Senator McConnell expressed, which was an impeachment process is designed as a civil action, not as a criminal action, and that if a person is no longer in office, that an impeachment would be inappropriate. Uh, uh, in the impeachment process that had occurred, uh, I voted not to impeach, and there was a couple of different items that had to be considered, one of which, and the first to be considered, is whether or not it was appropriate to impeach a former president. Yep. Once we start going down that path, there is no end. And it, that means then that every single new group will be coming in, every single new house will come in and look at previous presidents, previous individuals in office and so forth. And, and that was one thing our founding fathers made it very clear that they did not want that to happen. All right, Senator Rounds, thank you for joining us on this week. Up next, world-renowned chef Jose Andres is just back from the Middle East. He joins us with an update on his efforts to feed the hungry in Gaza as the humanitarian crisis there nears a tipping point. We'll be right back. We've been cheerleaders of pushing for the government to do airdrops. I was at the White House not too long ago, specifically also talking about this. I'm very proud, I'm very happy that finally the US government is joining the initiative of King Abdullah and the other countries, and hopefully doing not only one massive airdrop in the North, but continuous massive airdrops in the north. 
That was Chef Jose Andres Friday discussing the White House's decision to airdrop humanitarian aid into Gaza this weekend for the first time since the war began. Andres and his World Central Kitchen have been at the forefront of delivering humanitarian aid to the conflict zones around the world, including Ukraine and Gaza. We'll speak to him in just a moment. But first, ABC's Tom Sufi Burridge reports from Israel on the dire humanitarian situation in Gaza. For the first time, the U.S. airdropping food aid into Gaza, pallets containing 38,000 ready-to-eat meals to try and alleviate the increasingly dire situation for nearly two million people on the ground. Half a million Gazans on the brink of famine, says the UN, with many children now suffering from acute malnutrition and some starving to death. President Biden saying he was compelled to act. Innocent lives are on the line and children's lives are on the line. The president announcing the airdrops just 24 hours after a deadly crush of people in northern Gaza amid Israeli military gunfire. This IDF drone video showing thousands of people surging around a convoy of aid trucks. More than 100 were killed, according to the Hamas-run health ministry. Israel saying its troops fired warning shots and only opened fire on a crowd when they got too close to one of their tanks, adding dozens of people were crushed to death in the chaos. Survivors recounting the horror. I went to get a sack of flour for my parents, Abdullah Juha says, and they shot at us. This scene yesterday showing how hungry people in Gaza are. This is one of the main crossing points for those aid trucks from Egypt over there to Israel here and then on to Gaza. But as you can see, this route is completely blocked off by these protesters. They say they're doing it to prevent any of that aid getting into the hands of Hamas. Israel facing mounting international pressure to address a looming catastrophe on the ground. People in Gaza right now are starving to death and you're not letting enough aid trucks reach those people in need. First of all, people are not starving to death in Gaza well, right Well, the UN now. says they are. I beg to differ, but at any Ten rate... Ten children at least. But at, at, any, at any rate, Israel is enabling uh, thousands of trucks to, uh, to, to, to get into Gaza. Thousands, maybe uh, tens of thousands of uh, humanitarian trucks. And John, that top Israeli official saying Hamas's demands in those negotiations for a ceasefire are still, quote, delusional, so no sign of a breakthrough. A former political opponent of Netanyahu, Benny Gantz, now a part of Israel's war cabinet, is set to meet Vice President Kamala Harris in Washington tomorrow. The Israeli government rejecting the notion that those airdrops suggest the U.S. has lost confidence in Israel to deliver more aid to people in need, saying the airdrops were fully coordinated with Israel. John. All right. Our thanks to Tom Sufi Burridge. I'm joined now by Chef Jose Andres of World Central Kitchen, who recently returned from a trip to Jordan, Israel and Cyprus. World Central Kitchen and his partners have served more than 30 million meals in Gaza and just carried out the first food airdrops. Thank you very much, uh, Chef Jose, for joining us. Uh, you, you saw that report, that, that catastrophic scene with 100 people killed. I mean, accounts differ as to what actually happened, but there's no disputing that this situation is out of control. This is the perfect example that shows you that really people are in need of food and water. They are desperate. Mothers, fathers, they want to feed their children. So what you saw there is exactly the example of the desperation. That's why the solution is fairly simple. Let's open more 
places around uh, Palestine that we can access with trucks. And very quickly, we can stop that famine immediately in, in two, three days. But it has to be daily, constant, and massive. World Central Kitchen is providing more food aid than any other non-government organization. How are you actually operating under those conditions? Well, uh, how, how do you <laughs> ensure the safety of your people? The men and women of World Central Kitchen, they don't follow a plan, they always adapt. Uh, we are doing, at times, more than 350,000 home meals a day. We have more than 62, 63 kitchens functioning every day, each one with its bakery, making bread from scratch. We've been able to bring uh, thousands of kitchens that allow us to cook without the need to be cutting trees. It's just simple logistics. We have a very big warehouse, obviously in Cairo, that we are able to keep sending 20, 30, 40 trucks every single day uh, north. It takes almost over two weeks to get any one of those trucks to reach inside Gaza. And then we need to get to our warehouses. We have four or five warehouses. Again, the 61 kitchens. Then we distribute the food from the warehouses to those kitchens. And right now we have hundreds, if not thousands, of people, of volunteers that help us not only the infrastructure of bringing the food into Gaza, but the cooking of the food and the delivery uh, person to person, 10 to 10, so everybody in our camps is able to receive food. And you, you've been on the ground in Gaza with this, just like, just like you've been on the ground multiple times in Ukraine. But, but I saw you say this is uh, the, the most difficult situation of any you've faced. And, you, and you've been to a lot of tough places. Well, um, it's, it's a difficult situation because uh, the people of Palestine are surrounded by the sea and by three big walls. They have nowhere to go. Bombs falling down, can be shootings happening anywhere. People are anxious, makes the delivery of food complicated. That's what we do, free delivery. Meaning if sometimes our trucks are stopped, we don't fight it. We don't try to press the, you know, the, right. the, the gas. We stop, we put a smile, and we start delivering right there. We are working a lot with the communities in every route. So the same communities are the same ones that protect us so we can reach the northern places, hospitals and other, that they are in desperate need. The north is where the main need is right now. Even all of Gaza needs aid. I, I want to ask you about the airdrops, because there's been some um, in the humanitarian aid community of question them. Oxfam put out a statement <clears throat> just, just recently saying Oxfam does not support U.S. airdrops to Gaza, which would mostly serve, again, the Oxfam statement says, to relieve the guilty consciences of senior U.S. officials whose policies are contributing to the ongoing atrocities and the risk of famine in Gaza. Yeah, this probably is written by somebody that doesn't have, uh, uh, has a lot of time on his hands. Listen. We need to bring food into Gaza anyway we can. If their drops are happening, Jordan began. The king of Jordan has been in some of those drops. They were doing it to bring food to their hospital. It's great that then they increased to four planes, seven planes, so the countries join, more massive. Then U.S. follows suit. We should be bringing it by the sea, maritime. We should be putting boats in front of Gaza. I hope it's going to happen soon, where we can be bringing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of meals. Why are we doing the air, why people are doing, thinking about coming by, by the sea, because the political situation is not allowing to bring safely enough tracks. Therefore, we need to be bold. Yeah. I don't think we need to be criticizing that Jordan, America are doing airdrops. If anything, we should be applauding 
any initiative that brings food into Gaza. All right, Chef Jose Andres, thank you very much for joining us and thank you for the work you do. Up next, Trump and Biden both at the border as the president prepares for his State of the Union address. The powerhouse roundtable tackles it all when we come back. So much to get to this week. Let's bring in the powerhouse roundtable. Former DNC chair Donna Brazil, former RNC chair and Trump White House chief of staff Reince Priebus, Politico senior political correspondent Jonathan Martin, and Washington Post live co-anchor Leanne Caldwell. So, uh, Jay Mark, got to start with the trip to the border. Yes. Biden and Trump there at the same time. Did Biden do anything with this trip to neutralize what is an issue that has been killing him? Uh, in the short term, no, but he checked off something that he should have done probably six to eight months ago. Look, this has been an obvious challenge for him and for his party for some time now. Uh, I think Biden was slow to realize that. To his credit, they tried to address this, uh, obviously, in the Congress before Donald Trump killed the compromise bill in the Senate. But I think Biden's paying a price because he was too slow on the issue. Look, he was warned by his pollster in the first year of his White House that inflation, immigration, and crime were rising issues with the voters. Yeah. And they were slow on all three, but immigration is the one that's been most damaging, I think, in the last couple of months. And, and Leanne, there's been all this reporting that the White House is considering some executive answers now that that actions now that that bill has gone down. But you, you heard me question Senator Murphy about this. and. I mean, is there anything coming? Are they going to do anything? We'll see. They're saying that they are considering it, but they haven't done anything yet. And what Republicans will say is that Biden has had a chance to do executive orders uh, for the entire time that he's been in president. And that's why they say that legislation is not necessary. Now, of course, legislation does make it more, uh, you know, it, more impactful. Uh, but the writing that has been baked. And so President Biden is going to have to do a lot to turn around those poll numbers that for the first time, voters say that immigration is one of their top priorities. And also for the first time that voters want to build the wall. Right. Joe Biden owns this problem. He's owned it from day one. Uh, Secretary Mayorkas has been on TV talking about the fact that they undid bragging 80 plus of Trump's policies through executive order on day one. And on the border visit, you look at Donald Trump, what did he talk about? He talked about the young girl who was murdered in Georgia mm -hmm. by a person who crossed the border in 2002 after Joe Biden rescinded the Remain in Mexico policy, which would have required that person to sit across the border until his asylum case was decided. And what did Joe Biden talk about? He talked about climate change. He started going on a four-minute rant about climate change while he was sitting there well, on the border talk, he, in Mexico. I mean, I mean he did talk about the border. Okay, I mean, fine. He, he did. He talk about but it. it is wildly bizarre that he would talk about climate change and not the border, Donna. which is why he was well, there. Well, I mean, sometimes you can listen to half the speech and only cherry-pick what you like. The fact is that Joe Biden's first piece of legislation he sent up to Congress when after he was elected president was on immigration. We need comprehensive immigration reform. It went nowhere. Now, I'll, 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 it went nowhere. But the fact is, the Republicans want to weaponize this issue. They want an issue because they don't have a platform. They don't have a conversation. And they want to weaponize it. We need to fix what's at the border. Uh, the bipartisan package that was put together, I think, in, in a very fair way, that package should be on the table. Speaker. Uh, Mike Johnson, my 
fellow LSU graduate, although I'm a little older, <laughs> Speaker Johnson should bring that bill up and let the Congress decide it's time to fix our border. It's time to get an increase in Border Patrol, immigration officers, asylum uh, 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 folks, so that we can solve the problem. The Republicans want a problem. Democrats want a solution. But, but are, is he going to do something on executive action? He told I mean, the what, can, what, what, what can you do that I mean, will not be know, overturned they, by the courts? Uh, I can come or, up with some. Or, or, I mean, Congress needs to change the, some of the policies by statute. The president can do as much as possible, but where is he going to get 20, $25 billion? Uh, on, day one, on day one, Joe Biden signed nine executive orders. Six were on the border. One of the executive orders on immigration was a, an executive order that Joe Biden signed that ended the policy that if you commit a felony in the United States, that you don't get deported. He, he, why would someone want to keep an illegal immigrant in this country that commits a felony here? What is the rationale for that policy? Joe Biden did it with his pen on a piece of paper. I think, John, the short answer is he's almost certainly going to move on executive order if he keeps bleeding politically on the issue and there's no action in Congress. And I think both of those are very likely possible at this point. So uh, meanwhile, the, the primary is not over yet. I mean, we're talking about Trump and Biden, but there is Super Tuesday. Uh, so I want to read something Frank Bruni wrote in The New York Times, kind of summing up where we are. Uh, about Nikki Haley. In her unbroken string of Republican primary losses, she may be creating a win-win. It's Biden-Trump in November and Biden beats Trump. Haley gets to say to Republicans, I told you so. If Trump wins, moves back into the White House and sucks us into a nonstop democracy imperiling quasi-autocratic melodrama, Haley also gets to say, I told you so. Well, the thing about Haley continuing to be in this race yeah. is it is showing that the Republican Party is also quite divided. Uh, Nikki Haley in Michigan still got 27 percent of the of the vote, despite spending hardly any money there and not really campaigning there. And it's showing that Donald Trump, just like President Biden, has problems with uh, with voters, with voters, Republican and Biden, Democratic the, voters. The, but, but he really doesn't, because if you look at the polling that's come out the last couple of days, the enthusiasm level for Donald Trump is very high, and as opposed to where Joe Biden is. As far as Nikki Haley's concerned, she's also getting Democrat votes and independent votes in open primaries that don't include just Republicans. As far as the... the but they can Nikki, vote in the fall, Ryan. But they it, can vote in the fall, and that's it, the it, point. They can vote in the fall, <laughs> just like they always have. But I don't know what the play is here for Nikki Haley. Uh, the delegates on the floor of a convention aren't going to vote for a person whose the campaign is to... Trash the front runner. I, I I really don't see where this is well, going. Well, the play other is to save her money. Thinking yeah. about a no labels the, contest. The, the play is to stockpile money, create her own brand, and see what happens in 2028 or 2032. She can say, "I told you so," all she wants if Trump loses. But here's the problem with that, John. The party doesn't want to hear that, except for the 30 percent of the party that that likes her. The rest of the party does not want the reformation that she is calling for. They don't want to go back to what they were. They're happy with what they've become. And that's not going to change if Trump loses. And I think that's her larger challenge going forward is how does she increase her market share beyond 30, 35 that she has right now? Does Trump losing again help a little bit? At the margins, the, the challenge is the broader share of the party is not going back to the Bush era. And, and, and Donna, what about the more than 100,000 Democrats who went to vote in Michigan for uncommitted. Uh, 
What about the uncommitted voters in uh, Michigan in 2008 and 2012? You know, Michigan has a reputation of sending their own message. And I believe your vote is your voice. And the one thing the Biden campaign did to their credit, they didn't go in there and trash. They didn't go in there and say, hey, I don't want you guys to vote uncommitted. This is, they, they wanted to send a message and they sent a message. Now, can they pick up uncommitted in other places? Perhaps not. Can they get write-ins? Perhaps. We'll see what happens in Minnesota and places like Washington State. But look, Donald Trump is underperforming. You can see that. I mean, they said he was going to win by, you know, a blowout in South Carolina. You know, Nikki got a, a significant It was a blowout, portion. but it wasn't as it, big a blowout. It wasn't as... a biggest blowout. Yeah. But, you know, we also talk about how black folks are not supporting Joe Biden. And I have to say this because today is Bloody Sunday and the 59th anniversary of the, the famous march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, John Lewis Bridge. This black voters <clears throat> are turning out for Joe Biden. The enthusiasm gap is real. I want to give you that little bit of love so today. We, but you know what? Is Biden is going to close it. Biden has been underestimated time after time after time. And you know what? At the end of the day, he always come back and he comes back with a punch. So I, I want to, before we go, get to Mitch McConnell stepping down. Uh, Leanne, what is your sense? Uh, you heard me talk to Senator Rounds uh, about this. Is the Senate Republican leadership going to be the wholly owned subsidiary like the House seems to have become of, of Donald Trump? It's going to depend on who wins in November. If Donald Trump wins in November, yes, it is going to be Trump's party. And only a leader who is very close to Trump will be able to win that race. If Donald Trump loses in November, it's oh, yeah, not going to matter as much. So, so, what, so what about that? John Thune is, I mean, Trump wanted to beat the guy in the Republican mm -hmm. primary in South Dakota. Well... You know, I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, I, I, I talked to a good friend uh, the other day, a, a senator from Wisconsin that we all know, and I think that they are going to go through a deliberative, deliberative process. Um, but John Thune is a Packers fan, so I'm all for a fellow Packers. I don't know how deliberative it's going to be. I think it's going to be entirely tied to the results of the election, yeah. like Leanne says. I think if, if Donald Trump loses the election, John Thune is in poll position. If Trump wins, I still think Thune has a chance because there's still going to be enough Republican senators who want to be an independent body that's not wholly owned by Donald Trump. But obviously, Trump would have much more of a say and could really shape who wins. And I think you have to watch Steve Daines, who's the current NRSC chair. If he wins four to five seats this fall, Trump's already pushing him to run for a leader. Uh, does that give him an opening? And Mitch run? McConnell's legacy is the court. Mitch McConnell's legacy is destroying voting rights. And I can say that today on on you know, bloody Sunday. Mitch McConnell's legacy is overturning Roe v. Wade because when he did not allow a sitting president to, to uh, put his nominee forward, give Merrick Garland a hearing, that's Mitch McConnell's legacy. And we will never forget it. And it is a secret ballot. And so behind closed doors, who people vote for, but the elections do This matter. is going to be on the back burner, I think, for at least a few more months. Let us have some fun, Ryan. This is the important right. thing we're talking right. about. Come on. Come on. All There's right. no primary left. We got to join some. Let's talk about Biden some more. Before we go, a note on the powerful display of dissent and courage that we've seen over the past 48 hours in Moscow, where tens of thousands of Russians have come out to honor the memory and the mission of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Navalny was buried Friday, exactly two weeks after his sudden death at a remote Arctic penal colony. The people you see here turned out despite the menacing security and despite the threat of arrest. At one point, the line to his grave stretched over a mile long. 
Navalny's mother and father were there. His wife and two children who live abroad couldn't go. It's just not safe for them to enter Russia. Navalny's funeral comes less than three weeks before Putin is set to win yet another six-year term in an election that is anything but free and fair. Navalny represented a hope for a brighter, freer future for his country, a hope those honoring him this weekend in Moscow have not given up on. As we bid farewell this Sunday, we too remember Alexei Navalny and all he represented.